Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Monday, April 13th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, we've got a big political show today, all politics. But first, I want to congratulate my friend John Dickerson on his new role, a political role. It'll be very important politically. He will be the chief centrifuge inspector under the terms of the U.S. Iran deal. Okay, I'm being told that is not what he will be. Apparently, that was a fake John Dickerson Twitter account that told me that. No, he will be hosting Face the Nation. And this is cool for three reasons. One, John is great, and he will do a great job. Two, my go-to joke. I got a couple go-to jokes. Like, whenever I'm in Grand Central Station, I always say, what is this, Grand Central Station? Same thing with a sauna. Just sub out Grand Central Station and sub in like a sauna in here. Weirdly, I get fewer odd looks in the sauna when I say that than in Grand Central Station. So... Whenever I see or saw Bob Schieffer, the host of Face the Nation, not like I saw him millions of times, but, you know, I used to cover a lot of politics. He'd be at certain events, definitely political conventions, so forth, the uh, primaries, um, some caucuses. I'd see Schieffer. I'd always say the same thing. Let's go, Schieffer. Nation's not going to face itself. And, like, he'd give me a weird look because he doesn't know me. But now that I know Dickerson, oh, this joke will go mild. Come on, Dickerson. Let's go. Nation ain't going to face itself. But the third reason, the reason that I'm really excited for the Dickerson era is this. John talks at a normal rate of speed, maybe even kind of fast. See, Bob Schieffer, fine fellow, good host, broadcast legend, slow talker. So I would listen to the Face the Nation podcast at double speed, but sometimes his guests wouldn't speak at that slow speed, so there'd be a mismatch. However, The guests often would slow down. I find that guests kind of match the host's energy. And then sometimes you'd have just nirvana, like when a regular slow speaker, take John Kerry, legendary droner, when he was on with Bob Schieffer this weekend, here's what it sounded like. Do you think, Mr. Secretary, uh, hearing the sec- uh, Senator John McCain, I must say I was surprised by his comments. Uh, he went so strong here. Can you possibly get this through the Congress if a deal is reached, uh, if he's talking that way already? Well, I, again, the, the president spoke to Senator McCain's comments, and I'm not going to say anything further about it. So I timed that answer, I timed his segment, and John Kerry, Secretary of State, was speaking at 164 words a minute on Face the Nation. He was also on Meet the Press the same day. Chuck Todd, host of Meet the Press, faster speaker, coaxed Kerry into a faster rate of speech. I'm going to play some of it. I don't know if you could hear it, but maybe you can hear it. But in the end, the deal was signed, and the deal has been agreed to and lived up to No one contests that Iran has lived up to every component of that agreement, and the deal is what we said it was. All right, and that was at 180 words per minute. So just getting the guests to talk faster is a big boon. 
getting them to say more, to be more snappy, a little more of the old razzmatazz, better for the audience. So as I said, I do listen to Face the Nation at double speed as often as I can. Schieffer allows me to do that. Now here is that same clip that we played, but at double speed. I think you'll be able to follow along. Do you think, Mr. Secretary, uh, hearing the sec- uh, Senator John McCain, I must say, I was surprised by his comments. Uh, he went so strong here. Can you possibly get this through the Congress if a deal is reached, uh, if he's talking that way already? Well, I, again, the, the president spoke to Senator McCain's comments, and I'm not going to say anything further about it. But here's the really cool thing, right? You can go back to what we just played here on The Gist at double speed, and you can play that clip from Face the Nation at quadruple speed. I contend that you can still understand Schieffer and Kerry as we make the jump to quad speed. But that era is gone now. Let the new Dickersonian era begin. On the show today, politics, politics, presidents. Hillary's going to run. Finally, a major woman candidate. I hope things go better than in Bangladesh, Brazil, Argentina, other places where women have been in charge. I know, I know. I forgot all the Scandinavian countries, Germany. No, I didn't forget them. Not in my interview when I talked to a leading expert and asked if women really do make better heads of state. And in the spiel, I will delve into the Hillary Clinton announcement as only a Monday through Thursday American can. I'm not an everyday American. But first, a guy who is a president, but only our third male president. So in that regard, Thomas Jefferson, not that groundbreaking. But on this, the 272nd occasion of Thomas Jefferson's birth, we'll discover why everyone is still trying to align themselves with TJ. Tea Party types to this day still enjoy quoting Thomas Jefferson when he said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. And of course, liberals of all stripe like to appropriate the fact that or the assertion that all men are created equal. Democracy's Muse, how Thomas Jefferson became an FDR liberal, a Reagan Republican and a Tea Party fanatic all the while being dead is the new book by Andrew Burstein, who's a professor at LSU. Hello, Mr. Burstein. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Was Thomas Jefferson your favorite president? I don't have favorites. I'm a historian. I'm not allowed to. Oh, come on. Warren G. Harding and Thomas Jefferson are tied? (laughs) Thomas Jefferson, for me, is the most intriguing figure, political figure in early America. What I like about him is how expressive his use of American English is and that uh, it has a, a universal appeal. Uh, President Ronald Reagan adored Jefferson, kept note cards with Jefferson quotes on it. In 1993, when he visited Monticello, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, told the director of uh, Monticello that when he was in college, he read a book about the principles, the political principles of Thomas Jefferson. So there you have it, President Reagan and, and Mikhail Gorbachev both finding Jefferson to be their muse. It does seem to me, I mean, to this day, many Democratic clubs uh, sponsor the Jefferson-Jackson dinner. They were seen as the forefathers of the uh, modern Democratic Party. Would you say he'd be more closely aligned with the Democrats today or the Republicans? I don't think I'm giving anything away in terms of the argument of the book when I say that uh, Jefferson is not owned by the left and he's not owned by the right. He belongs to the past. And that doesn't mean that politicians will ever stop trying to intuit what Jefferson would be in favor of if he were alive today. I talk about uh, in the book something uh, I 
called Jefferson abuse when uh, politicians uh, and you know you read the congressional co- uh, the, the congressional record and you see this uh, all the time they'll they'll quote Jefferson by either mixing two quotes that he spoke uh, years apart or wrote years apart or uh, they'll just misconstrue or take out of context something he wrote i mean the the tree of liberty blood of patriots and tyrants uh, quote a perfect example of that. That was uh, uh, emblazoned on the T-shirt that Timothy McVeigh wore the day he blew up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Right. And this Tree of Liberty quote, I mean, this is maybe bolsters his credentials the most among the right, especially adherence to the Second Amendment. People will show up, you know, brandishing firearms, often legally with T-shirts that have the uh, Tree of Liberty quote. So that was a direct comment on Shays Rebellion, right? Which is like in 1786, I think, maybe 87. Right. I think from what I've read, Jefferson maybe wasn't as condemnatory or as afraid of Shays Rebellion. Remember, this was after the British yoke had been tossed off. He maybe took a more understanding stance towards Shays Rebellion, but he was still against Shays Rebellion. And he still, you know, was influential in writing a constitution that allowed for militias to be used to suppress rebellions. I don't know if, you know, everyone wearing a Blood of uh, Tyrants t-shirt gets that context. Right. Uh, I understand what you're saying. Um, I think the best uh, perspective to take on this is that uh, Jefferson and others of his generation who were making the laws, uh, they could not foresee a time when individual gun ownership would be identified with individual uh, rights, liberties, anywhere near the extent that we see it today. It was not a hot-button issue. It was probably the least concerning of any of the amendments in the Bill of Rights. Yes. And uh, we're not going to learn from the founders uh, what they felt about guns because it wasn't at all an issue. I mean, you might just as well ask, what did they feel about abortion? Right. It was an issue. Right. Yeah, or cars, or the interstate highway, <laughs> or the Xbox. Um, is there an opinion of Jefferson's uh, that no one would associate themselves with today? Well, his scientific racism, of course. Right. You know, Jefferson had the uh, unfortunate habit of putting things on paper sometimes that uh, he could not anticipate future generations finding to be ugly and uh, demeaning. And so he wrote in the one book he published in his lifetime, Notes on Virginia, that uh, blacks, you know, uh, secreted from the kidneys and uh, had an offensive odor and uh, were uh, inherently less intelligent than white people. Um, things that, that a lot of white people believed at that time. But Jefferson put them into a kind of language that's more visceral, more um, expressive than than what others did. And so for the same reason that we might adore him for the kinds of uplifting things he wrote about the human conscience and human dignity, same kind of literary flair could be used to say ugly things about eugenics and about uh, racial inferiority that we've uh, long since dismissed. Uh, and he thought of them as, as science. 
the job of the historian should be to interrogate the past, not to criticize it in a way of saying they were bad people. And we know that future historians will look back on us and think that we were obsessed with sex and Kardashians and uh, meanwhile uh, global warming was occurring mm-hmm. or you know, the, maybe the homeless situation was out of control and we knew these things but we weren't you know, taking the necessary action to improve the human condition. So Jefferson didn't do enough to improve the human condition. Lincoln didn't do enough to improve the human condition. But their eloquence uh, allows us to reclaim that part of them which tells us what the best American principles were and that we can develop from their ideals real practical solutions to human problems. So they, they embodied the Enlightenment of the 18th century, and now it's our job to make the Enlightenment of the 21st century something even better than what they envisioned. Andrew Burstein is the Charles P. Manship Professor of History at LSU, Louisiana. Thank you, Jefferson. And he is the author of Democracy's Muse, How Thomas Jefferson Became an FDR Liberal, a Reagan Republican, and a Tea Party fanatic, all the while being dead. Thank you, Andrew. My pleasure. Good to be with you. So I've been telling you how Stamps.com is great for business, and here's validation from a listener who signed up for Stamps.com after hearing about it on a Slate podcast. It's graphic designer Mark Allender. Mark is a self-employed entrepreneur. When his small business began to have a need for regular mailing and shipping, he signed up for Stamps.com after hearing about it on these podcasts. And now Mark uses Stamps.com right from his computer, says it has made a huge difference in his business shipping operations. When asked how Stamps.com changed his business, Mark said that Stamps.com, quote, made it possible. That says it all. I recommend Stamps.com for anyone who has to do regular mailing and shipping right now. Use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer. You get a no-risk trial. You get a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in THEGIST. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. As Hillary Clinton's candidacy represents the best chance for America to have a female leader, you hear a bunch of sentiments. You hear the old atavistic knuckle-dragging, a woman can't be a leader. Mm, But I think maybe it's just what I pay attention to. But I'm hearing the sentiment, well, finally, it's time to have a female leader. Or even, you know, maybe in some ways a woman would make a better leader. That's something you hear. Well, let's look around the world. You know, Of the 37 countries in Asia, Bangladesh has the fourth lowest per capita income. Afghanistan's the worst. It's in Cato Institute's top 50 in the misery index. And guess what? That country, a rare Muslim democracy, has been led for the last 20 years by one of two women. And these women and their infighting have claimed 100 lives in turmoil in that country lately. In Brazil, Dilma Rousseff has inherited a struggling economy, done nothing to turn it around. There are massive protests calling for her recall. On the other hand, Germany, Angela Merkel, she's become the hard man, sorry, hard woman of Europe. She is dictating the terms of economic recovery all throughout that continent. Christina Kirchner in Argentina, 
polarizing, becoming less popular with the uh, reports of the death of a prominent prosecutor in that country. Ellen Sirleaf Johnson, first female elected president of an African country, a mixed bag. She blew the whistle on herself with some of her handling of Ebola, and yet the country is now Ebola-free. Well, joining me now to talk about the general prospect and what we can learn from the handful but not insignificant number of female leaders is Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Hello, Debbie. Hello. Nice to be with you. So I will acknowledge I'm, I'm not calling up someone who studies men and politics because that up until, you know, 20, 30 years ago was just called <laughs> studying politics. I didn't ask political science. Yes. Right. And I, I'm not asking anyone, why do we keep sticking with these men? I mean, we had Gaddafi. We had Hussein. What's wrong with these men? But as to the general question, you know, as we look at the world, there are different circumstances. Is there a trend with women leaders? Are they stronger than were expected? Do democracies who elect women leaders, for instance, come back to electing women leaders? What have we learned? Well, you know, we have seen women around the world getting elected as heads of state. We've yet to see it in the United States, but it has happened around the world. And you know, I think it's a mixed bag. I think just the way it's a mixed bag of men who get elected to be heads of state. So there have been women who have done extraordinary jobs. I think there are women who have been mediocre. Um, And, uh, you know, one of the things that Bella Abzug said many, many years ago was that, well, no, we have really achieved equality when mediocre women are as accepted as mediocre men um, in public leadership. Are those countries more progressive? I mean, it's common in Scandinavian countries and Switzerland, which doesn't really have a head of state, has frequently had a woman as the head of its council that serves as uh, de facto head of state. So is there an explanation, a socioeconomic explanation, why it hasn't happened in the United States as compared to other countries? One of the reasons that women have done better in many parliamentary countries than the United States is that they have quotas. So, for instance, the United States ranks in the 70s Um, the the mid to low 70s among all of the nations for the percentage of women serving in in our national legislature. The number one country is Rwanda. But many of the countries that we see above us are countries that have quotas. And in fact, when Iraq was drawing up its constitution and Afghanistan its constitution, the United States really inserted, we inserted ourselves into that discussion And we were the ones that put in place quotas. So in Iraq right now, the quota is 25% of the national parliament has to be female. In the United States, we're at about 19% women in our Congress. So you can see that those quotas make a big difference. When did you start in your field? When did you start studying women in politics or politics in general? Well, the Center for American Women in Politics has been around since 1971, and I've been at the center since 1981. So in 1981, if I told you, you know, by 2015, give me the landscape in terms of women who might plausibly be president, would you have predicted we'd be about where we are? Would you have predicted there'd be more plausible candidates? Would it be a surprise to you that uh, at least one of the party's clear frontrunners was a woman? Yeah, that's a great question, because I have sort of two answers to that. You know, I wasn't sure that in my lifetime, there might be a woman elected president of the United States. But I did think that we would be doing better in terms of electing women across the board. So, In 1991, 
we saw this year of the woman, 1992, you know, 91 was the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings. There were a lot of open seats coming up in 1992, and we saw a doubling of the women in Congress. But since that year, we have seen very little growth, both at the state legislative level and the congressional level. That's where I'm surprised. Yeah. And I'm thinking again of Barack Obama. And when he was elected president, you know, it was this odd situation where there was actually no after he left, there was no black senator. So there was no one elected statewide, uh, no black official who was elected to a statewide office anywhere in the United States, maybe under the level of governor. So if we were kidding ourselves saying, oh, this means that, you know, blacks can be elected, African-Americans can be elected rather easily. No, Barack Obama was an outlier. And I think in a lot of ways, Hillary Clinton's an outlier. Hillary Clinton is. I mean, when we talk about her, you know, when I was talking about the sort of the symbolic nature, right, the symbolic representation and, you know, people who can follow in her footsteps. Well, that's a pretty unusual path, right? I mean, this is not particularly replicable, um, the way she has come into, into power. So I think that notion that, you know, once Barack Obama got elected, there wasn't really anybody next in line. Yeah. Um, and there are very few next in line after Hillary Clinton. More than there were, you know, 10 years ago, but still not as many as one would have predicted, given that starting in the 1970s um, and through about 1991, we sort of saw about a one to two percentage point increase every election cycle for women serving in state legislatures. And I point to state legislatures because they are the place that is really the, the springboard for women who run for Congress. Debbie Walsh, director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much. It was fun. And now the spiel. She's fantastic and dynastic. Hillary Clinton will run. She will run. The anticipation, the announcement, the logo. It's an H, blue and red has an arrow. Okay, but beyond even the logo, some people just ain't buying this whole Hillary has credentials argument. People who themselves have credentials. People like Carly Fiorina. I think our nation's at a pivotal time, so anyone who wants to be president or commander-in-chief needs a track record of leadership and accomplishment and trustworthiness. So Hillary Clinton doesn't have a record of leadership. Well, she was Secretary of State. Some facts about the uh, position of Secretary of State, leads a Foreign Service Corps with 13,000 employees. She uh, then has the Department Civil Service. Those are 11,000 employees. And there are over 45,000 locally employed Foreign Service staff at overseas posts. It adds up to 69,000 people. I know, it doesn't really count. I mean, it's not like it's 70,000 people. But it's something, right? Isn't it something? Now, Fiorina. Why did I choose Fiorina? Well, I was trying to visit the website of people who've come within a million votes of Barbara Boxer in a California Senate election, but still lost, but people who've lost by less than a million. Unfortunately, there are only two people who did that. One, Matt Fong, is dead. The other, Bruce Hershenson, didn't have a live Facebook page. So I expanded my search a little bit to people who lost by more than a million votes. And there I found Carly Fiorina. Let's play more of her criticism of Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton's a highly intelligent woman, hardworking. She's dedicated her life to public service, but unfortunately she does not have a track record of accomplishment or transparency. 
Oh, well, transparency. She did add that second time around. That's a new one to the list. We'll get back to that. Let's talk about accomplishment. Hillary Clinton lacks accomplishment. All right. Hillary Clinton went to Yale Law School. She made law review. She was a law professor. She was a corporate lawyer. She was the first lady of Arkansas, first lady of the U.S. She was a senator. She did win 22 primaries or caucuses in 2008. She was the secretary of state. I mean, that's something. Like maybe not one or two or three or four or five or six of those things, but all of them, it's some accomplishment, right? All right, what if I said this? She has been mentioned in 18,568 late-night monologues, more than all the Kardashians combined. Huh? Huh? Also, she was a senator. Is Hillary Clinton transparent? No, on that, that's true. She's not transparent. You know who is transparent? An icicle. Glass. Also, as a human, she's not transparent. Also, she's polarizing. This gets said about Hillary Clinton. You know who else is polarizing? every politician ever. Let's try to find a non-polarizing presidential candidate. Well, there is one guy who won unopposed, so George Washington was not polarizing. All right, all right let's, let's open our search a little bit. How about we talk about the guy who won by the largest margin in percent of the vote? That'd be Warren G. Harding. You know who heads the list of worst presidents ever when historians make that list? That'd be Warren G. Harding. There's a great article four days ago in the Washington Post. It was, Hillary Clinton is polarizing in the sense that she is a politician running for office. Bang. Good job, Philip Bump. And there was a great article in U.S. News and World Report today. 2016's groundbreaking woman isn't Clinton, it's Carly Fiorina. Unqualified men constantly run for office. It's about time a woman did too. Bang! Credit to Susan Milligan. Words like transparent and polarizing, they're nonsense. So is the claim that she's been vetted. Supporters of Hillary talked about this. Bill de Blasio mentioned a couple times on Meet the Press. She's been vetted. Does that mean she survived the vetting? Well, a lot of people don't think so. You know, the people who make her polarizing. But it's like saying, oh, she's been vetted, so no need to form any critical thoughts on Hillary Clinton from this day forward. She's been vetted. But on the other side, they charge her with being inevitable. RNC chairman Reince Priebus derides Clinton as inevitable. She has that, that air of inevitability. What is she supposed to do? Is she supposed to say, I'm running, but you know what? I don't think I'll win. I might not win. I don't think I'm going to win. I mean, come on. Words like ambitious. Oh, she's the ambitious politician. Ted Cruz, Jeb Bush, Bobby Jindal, Carly Fiorina. You know, they'd be just as happy delivering pizzas and making a bong out of an apple core. That's what we want in the White House. One of these non-ambitious sorts. Words. The only words that really matter are words like stimulus versus austerity, sanctions versus bombs, Iranian deal or no deal. Words. I guess I better go back to the logo. That arrow is pointy. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is getting ready to respond to your angry tweets with the phrase, Mike said that, not me, or as we call it around the office, control M. Managing producer Joel Meyer is getting ready for spring, or as the native Minnesotan calls it, August 2nd. Executive producer Andy Bowers is getting ready for podcasts to supplant the oral tradition as the number one spreader of old wives' tales. I'm getting ready to do something, too. I'm running for president. Well, how the hell did you get in here? Have you, have you seen your logo? That's a disqualifier. What about the part where I say, guests of the gist stay at the Sanaa Staybridge Suites, extended stay facilities catering to an upscale, globe-trotting Houthi pro-Shiite traveler, now under new management. Well, uh, now under even newer management. 
The gist is getting ready for a new beginning, expansive horizons, wide open possibilities, and a litany of other phrases that are simultaneously redundant and meaningless. But first, for your listening edification, for your ongoing adult education, for your auditory enlightenment, it's They Might Be Giants. You know them from Dial a Song, and every Monday, they turn the gist into their platform and your audio listening device into a veritable thinking machine. Tape has brightening arm connect. Wait, that didn't make sense. Self-paint lever itching dust. That made even less sense. Shaving copter anymore. That's not even a sentence. Wellcrat tonsils speep in act. Some of those aren't words. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? I'll put it in my thinking machine. Uncle 14 marching flame. Don't know what you said. Sleep expensive cloud enjoy. Still not following. Gerblong, tromplum, dim, fim, limb. Pretty sure that's gibberish. Dog, 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 dog. Now you're just repeating the word dog. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? I put it in my thinking machine. Cash fog, Ansel, Adam's mouth. What? Green grape gravy, grateful grab. What? Skelly, telly, telly time. Does it mean? What does it mean? I put it in my thing.